0: Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to another week of me answering your questions about Come Follow Me. Uh, it's been a good week. I've had a good week at least. I hope you've all had a good week. Uh, exciting stuff uh, to study this week, Second Nephi 31 through 33. Unfortunately, uh, not a lot of questions and that is my fault. I forgot to uh, post the notice and uh, very early in the week and So everyone only had about a day to ask a question. So I apologize for that. I will do better this next week. It's kind of disappointing because this is one of my favorite parts of the Book of Mormon. So I would have loved to have lots of good questions. But again, my fault, not your fault. I apologize. Uh, We'll do better. Uh, Before we dive in, uh, just the usual disclaimer. The answers given in this video do not represent the official position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Book of Mormon Central, or the Come, Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group, and since they're somewhat off the cuff, they don't really represent my official views either. I reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, but with that said, let's go ahead and dive in. I think I've, I'm going to answer every question because there were only three last time I checked anyway, uh, and so uh, we're going to just go through all three of them. First one is uh, from Janine Glenn. Uh, When Nephi talks about speaking with the tongue of angels, is he talking about spiritual gifts like glossolalia, as Paul was in 1 Corinthians 13 when he used the same phrase? Uh, I ask because I know that these charismatic gifts of the Spirit were manifest in the early 19th century church, and I think it's interesting to see what Joseph and the early saints may have had on their minds and where the various influences came from. Also, the relationship between the Book of Mormon and the New Testament is fascinating to me. Okay, Uh, I'm so glad you asked about tongue of angels because it is one of my favorite topics in this section. Um, I actually wrote a paper about Nephi's use of the phrase tongue of angels a couple of years ago, and Book of Mormon Central also has a No Why on this topic, so uh, you can check out No Why number sixty, which is what is it to speak with the tongue of angels, Um, and then my paper with the tongue of angels, angelic speech as a form of deification. Uh, You can find that in the Book of Mormon Central archive or at the Interpreter Foundation website, which is uh, where it was originally published. Now, I'm going to confess, though, when I wrote the paper, I did not engage the New Testament references uh, on to the gift of tongues and and tongue of angels and men and things like that. Um, I wish I had, but they were just completely off my radar at the time. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, despite having not, I, I would like to go back at some point and look at those and and see how they compare with what I'm talking about in this, uh, in in my research on this here. Uh, But I'm confident in my thesis nonetheless that uh, I I do not think it is referring to the spiritual gift of tongues uh, or the charismatic gifts of the spirit. Um, So just, I'm gonna try to keep this as brief as I can. My friends who know me know I can talk about this all day because I love, I love, I love this topic. Um, but uh, just in brief, I think when Nephi talks about speaking with the tongue of angels, uh, he is talking, he is tying it to the Israelite prophetic tradition of um, entering into the presence of God, having having a vision like Lehi does at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, right? in Council or the angels. Um, and then receiving God's judgments and decrees in the in his council. Uh, and being commissioned as a newly initiated member of his council. So you become one of his, the prophet would become one of God's messengers or angels, which is the original meaning of the Greek uh, angelos and uh, also the Hebrew uh, malakim, which is usually translated angel, means messenger. Uh, and so the prophet would become a member of the divine council. He'd become one of the malakim, one of the angels and uh, would be the one commissioned to be the messenger to the mortal world um, and to deliver God's decrees. And I think that's where Nephi's going with this, and I'll explain a little bit of that here uh, just really quickly. Second um, Nephi 31.13, he says, you can speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. Um, and if you look at First 1 Nephi 1, 1.8, where Lehi has his vision of God sitting on his throne, surrounded by numberless concourses of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising their God, right? And so Nephi is connecting, speaking with the tongue of angels, as basically doing what the angels are doing in God's counsel here. Um, In 1 Nephi 1.14, Lehi himself starts singing praises to God, uh, and that is a literary trope used in the Old Testament and in uh, ancient Near Eastern literature to kind of signify that the prophet has now become one of the angels himself. So Lehi is kind of inducted into uh, uh, the divine council there. Uh, 2 Nephi 32.2, when he's going back over uh, some of this stuff, says, Do you not remember that I said unto you that after ye had received the Holy Ghost, ye could speak with the tongue of angels? Uh, And now how could ye speak with the tongue of angels, save it were by the Holy Ghost? Uh, This is an interesting one to me because of Nephi's own experience uh, the one time we know he has a conversation with an angel in, in first Nephi 11 through 14, who does he talk to first? He talks to the spirit of the Lord in first Nephi 11, uh, one through six. And, uh, some people debate whether spirit of the Lord refers to the premortal Christ or whether it's, uh, the Holy ghost. I think it's the Holy ghost. Uh, spirit of the Lord is almost always referring to the Holy ghost in scripture, um, and uh, I think uh, when Nephi is talking here about, you have to, you, you you can speak with the tongue of angels by the Holy Ghost, he's kind of looking back on his own experience. He was inducted into the presence of an angel um, and some people have argued he actually was, uh, he actually was having his own full divine council scene here. Um, but uh, we only get, uh, he has one-on-one conversation with only one of the members of the council basically. Um, but uh, Nephi's inducted into that presence by, uh, the spirit of the Lord. It's, it's through the spirit of the Lord who kind of asks him questions and tests his worthiness. And once he's proven himself, it's through him that he's then able to, uh, actually speak to angels and thus gain the words of the angels and the tongue of angels, if you will. Um, and so that's kind of his own experience being reflected there. Uh, I also, uh, think this is important to connect here to what Nephi says in 2 Nephi 31, 13, and 14. The Holy Ghost is the baptism of fire, right? Um, and you have to go through this uh, by fire and by the Holy Ghost process in order to speak with the tongue of angels. Um, in verse 17, he connects, uh, it's by fire and by the Holy Ghost that you receive the remission of sins, which is a little different than the way we usually think about it. We usually associate remission of sins specifically with the water baptism, but Nephi connects it more firmly with the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. Um, and I think this connects actually to, Le- um, not Lehi, uh, Isaiah's vision, uh, where, uh, in, in which Nephi records in 2 Nephi 16, right, uh, which is Isaiah 6, where he sees the heavenly hosts as seraphim which uh, is a Hebrew word, it means fiery ones, right? So the Holy Ghost is the baptism of fire. The heavenly hosts are the fiery ones, and one of the fiery ones brings a hot coal to Isaiah and puts it on his lips, right? Uh, lips, mouth, tongue, all very similar imagery for, uh, for the words we speak, the messages we deliver, those kinds of things in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so this fiery, this fiery being delivers a hot coal which purifies Isaiah, allows him to be admitted into the presence of the divine council to hear their message, and then he is then commissioned as their messenger to speak their words, speak the words of angels, speak with the tongue of angels, if you will, uh, to the world. Uh, Then 2 Nephi uh, 32.3, Nephi talks about how the angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. We just kind of went over that one. Uh, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. So speaking with the tongue of angels uh, means to speak the words of Christ because that's what angels speak, he says. Um, and this is exactly what happens with uh, people who are uh, prophets who are called uh, and uh, stand before God and his counsel, is uh, they become his messengers and they are delivering the the words of the Lord to the people. They have... Um, you know, they, they have his message and they give it. And there's usually um, some kind of imagery with the mouth and things like that in a lot of cases. In Jeremiah 1, for instance, uh, the Lord touches Jeremiah's mouth and he is uh, the Lord tells him that he has put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. So Jeremiah speaks the words of the Lord after he has been in the presence of God and had his mouth touched by them. Uh, so, um, so the, uh, so that's, that kind of stuff happens, uh, a lot in scripture and things like that. Another connection, uh, to 2nd Nephi 32, 3, where he says, he's saying, okay, angels speak the words of Christ. So wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ. So if you want to speak the words of Christ, if you want to speak with the words of angels, uh, well, if you want to speak with the tongue of angels, you've got to speak the words of Christ. If you want to speak the words of Christ, you've got to have the words of Christ. You've got to feast on them, right? That's kind of Nephi's point here. Uh, and so that connects actually, you have Ezekiel 2:30, uh, no, not Ezekiel 2 and 3, those chapters where Ezekiel's own vision of the throne of God and uh, the angels and what have you. And he, uh, the Lord in, in, in Ezekiel's vision, the Lord gives him a book or a scroll is probably the more accurate translation here. And the Lord tells him to eat the book, right? To feast on it. And uh, after he eats the book, Ezekiel is able to deliver the message or the words of the book to the people. So uh, this is all imagery that Nephi is using to describe the tongue of angels. And it's all connected in, uh, in various ways to these divine counsel, these prophetic call narratives, and these kinds of things where people are brought into the presence of God on his throne with the angels and uh, so on and so forth. So I think Nephi is drawing a lot on that imagery to describe what speaking with the tongue of angels means. And uh, kind of the kicker here is throughout this discourse, Nephi is subtly trying to indicate to the reader that he himself is speaking or writing, I suppose, with the tongue of angels or the pen of angels, I guess it would be. I don't know. Uh, so for example, in second Nephi 31, 13, Nephi lays out the progression of the doctrine of Christ, right? And, uh, you know, he talks about how you have to have faith and you have to repent and you have to, um, be baptized by water, then be baptized by fire. And then you can speak with the tongue of angels. The very next verse in verse 14, he lays, he repeats all those same steps. He, he relays the same message, but he, 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 casts it in the voice of the son he says the voice of the son came unto me and said and it repeats Nephi's message so uh that kind of means Nephi's message is Christ's message or Nephi's words are Christ's words right and that's what angels speak he is his message about the doctrine of Christ is the words of Christ here right uh and so he's speaking or writing with the tongue of angels and He's a little more explicit, actually, in 2 Nephi 33, verses 10 and 11, where he says, if you believe in Christ, you'll believe these words because they are the words of Christ. So he's telling us, my writings, my words are the words of Christ. And uh, then he's also quite explicit there because he says, you know, if they're not, you know, if you don't think they are, you know, fine, judge ye. Because we will stand face to face at the judgment bar of God and you will know that they were the words of Christ. And the reason we'll know they were the words of Christ at that moment is because if Nephi is there at the judgment bar of God, it means he is one of God's heavenly hosts. He's one of God's messengers, his angels, uh, because that's what the divine council uh, was part of God's judgment. God would sit in his council and judge the world um, in, uh, in ancient Israelite, uh, imagery and iconography. So, uh, so he's basically saying, you'll see that I'm one of the angels and I'm speaking with the tongue of angels. And these are the words of Christ. Uh, so, um, anyway, I, I'm sorry. That's a big tangent. Like I said, a big, uh, a favorite topic of mine. I think one of the take home points for me, when you start seeing tongue of angels in this light is that, uh, Nephi places it as the end point to which we strive for and the progression of the doctrine of Christ. Uh, You'll notice things like the uh, article of faith number four, uh, and when we typically teach the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ uh, in missionary lessons, we do faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. We don't talk about tongue of angels, we talk about enduring to the end. Um, I think what Nephi is saying is the ultimate end point of of living and and going through this progression and living the gospel over your life is you ultimately uh you come into the presence of God and you you become one of the angels you become one of the heavenly hosts and you speak with the tongue of angels and you know the members of the heavenly hosts are called angels sometimes they're called gods right this is uh this is Nephi talking about becoming divine beings ourselves and this is the doctrine of exaltation, in essence. Um, that's what the tongue of angels ultimately is. Now, I know uh, in a lot of ways, lots of people have uh, moments of strokes of inspiration. I shouldn't say strokes, but the Holy Ghost comes upon people. The the Spirit inspires them to say things, and and we often consider that speaking with the tongue of angels. And that's like a taste of it, I think. But ultimately, the ultimate end of speaking with the tongue of angels is becoming, uh, is coming into the presence of God and becoming like God, right? And being able to, to speak the words of Christ. Make it so that your words are Christ's words um, because you yourself have become a member of his divine counsel. Um. So anyway, I hope that was interesting. If you want to know more, like I said, uh, there's the Know Why that we did on this. I've got a, a full paper. It's like 20 pages, so there's a lot more information in there. Uh, if you're skeptical, go look at the full paper before you tell me how wrong I am, whatever the case may be. Uh, But that's just some of my thoughts on what it means to speak with the tongue of angels. Uh, Maybe, like I said, I didn't do a lot of work on New Testament comparisons there. I actually brought in some early Christian references, but I did not engage with the New Testament. So uh, maybe look at the New Testament references yourself and see if you can, if you think there's anything substantive to that point of view uh, on those passages. I don't know. Uh, All right. Michael Christensen asks uh, Nephi's discussion of baptism in 2 Nephi 31 at one point seems to morph into a transcript of a conversation between himself, the Father, and the Son. Does this mean Nephi had received the second Comforter per John 14 uh, 23 and Doctrine and Covenants 130, verse 3? Uh, And for those of you who don't have your scriptures out and aren't following along, those are references about. uh, uh, having the Father and the Son uh, dwell with you. Um, and Joseph Smith is actually specifically clarifying John 14, 23 in the Doctrine and Covenants reference, saying that this is a literal personal visitation or appearance uh, from the Father and the Son that's being talked about. Uh, I don't necessarily want to make any doctrinal pronouncements about who has or has not received that kind of experience uh, or anything, but... Uh, The text isn't clear here whether he's actually seeing the Father and seeing the Son, or if he's simply hearing their voices and uh, just having an, an audible revelatory experience here. Or if these are actually maybe words from the Father and the Son that have come to him in other revelations at another point that he didn't record earlier in his record, uh, but he's now remembering and drawing on as sources, if you will, in his speech, um, or in his uh, in his concluding uh, address. Here, um, it's not clear. I don't know if, if what's going on, but I do think uh, tying back to what we were just talking about, the whole point, a big a big a main point anyway of this final section is Nephi is indeed affirming that he has stood in the presence of God. And his counsel, and um, and you know, received the wisdom and the knowledge that you can receive there. Um, and so that's kind of uh, probably certainly we would assume in the counsel of God would include both the Father and the Son. Uh, and so that's kind of probably the ancient Israelite equivalent to receiving the kind of visitation being talked about uh, in uh, John fourteen twenty three, and in particular in Doctrine and Covenants. 130 uh, verse 3. Um, in fact, if you uh, are interested, you we can even, uh, on Pearl of Great Price Central, the uh, sister site for Book of Mormon Central, uh, we just posted uh, an essay this week on the first vision, uh, Joseph Smith's personal visitation of the Father and Son, right? We just posted one on the first vision as a divine counsel vision um, in the uh, consistent with the ancient Israelite tradition, because in the 1835 account, Joseph says that he saw many angels. And so uh, just kind of picking up on that little detail there, uh, we suggest that maybe this is part of that prophetic pattern that goes all the way back to ancient Israelite times. Uh, And so kind of connects to uh, uh, the topic here, might be of interest uh, to some people. Um, all right. And this is, I think my last question. Yeah. Uh, from Rachel Mason Abbott. Uh, my question is from second Nephi 32, six, behold, this is the doctrine of Christ and there will be no more doctrine given till after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you, shall ye observe to do, uh, there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. Um, uh, What does this mean? Did the doctrine change? Was more added? The only thing I could think of is that temple worship changed. Among other things, it went from the high priest entering the presence of God once a year on the day of atonement uh, to every worthy patron being able to uh, attend the temple and and go through that process. So uh, curious, uh, she says, curious for your thoughts. Um, There's some allusion here. uh, For those who haven't read it, no Y number 552, how does God or how does the doctrine of Christ relate to the ancient temple? Um, and I do think that's, uh, relevant to, to this question. Um, in that know why we talk about the idea and this was also talked about if you follow Taylor and Tyler's, uh, come follow me series. They talked about uh, this or something very similar, at least in, in their video for this week as well. Uh, This kind of ties the doctrine of Christ into the uh, floor plan, the uh, layout of the ancient tabernacle and Temple of Solomon, uh, where you have the altar of sacrifice, which represents uh, repentance, right? We're sacrificing, we're changing, and and things like that. Uh, The brazen sea or molten sea, which, uh, you know, being water and being used to purify and wash the priests, represents symbolically baptism you enter in the gate of the temple uh, and then uh, you're in the holy place which has the menorah, the uh, which is re- relative to the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost right the, the the burning menorah you've got the table of showbread so you can feast right on the words of Christ and then you've got the altar of incense where you pray and uh, Nephi gets us to this point and then says, you must pray. I can't take you any further. You must pray. And you're standing at that point. The altar of incense is standing there right at the veil where you have the cherubim or the angels stitched on there who represent symbolically the actual guardian angels at the at the veil guarding the presence of God. And you want to pass through that veil into the presence of God, right? Um, that's the uh, brief idea there in the know why. And uh, based on that, uh, Sean Hopkins is the one, at least that I read, who suggested that uh, this reference to, um, to Christ manifesting himself in the flesh could be taken as this idea of you pass through the veil here and you enter into the presence of God. God is manifest to you. Christ is manifest unto you. Um, and uh, under that kind of interpretation, what Nephi seems to be saying essentially is this is all the doctrine I can teach you openly and publicly. But if you enter in, you know, you enter into the presence of God and you can receive, uh, greater truths, greater knowledge, right? Uh, the mysteries, as they would say in kind of ancient temple language, uh, you, you can receive the mysteries of God, uh, you know, in the temple. Uh, we would, uh, you know, further lighten knowledge. And I'll just, I'll leave it there, but uh, we have the same kind of concept in our modern temples, right? We have um, we have our teachings uh, that uh, that we talk about openly and, and and things like that, but then we go to the temple to receive um, special instruction, right? And uh, and and to also symbolically enter into the presence of God to do that. So uh, a more direct reading uh, is to interpret this as referring to after Christ comes in the flesh, right, uh, then there will be some additional doctrine to, uh, to impart, right? And, um, and uh, that is uh, also a, a valid interpretation. I don't think this is an either-or sort of thing, and in that case, I, I, the, the thing that just comes to my mind is it's the fulfillment of the law of Moses, right? When Christ came, he fulfilled the law of Moses, And, uh, there was a new, uh, way of interpreting and, uh, and moving forward with God's law and God's commandments. And part of that is like you mentioned now, rather than just the high priest, uh, participating in, uh, important ordinances, everyone, we no longer do sacrifices and things like that, but everyone now participates in the, uh, everyone who wants to come unto Christ anyway, gets to participate in the ordinances, uh, right. Um, and so the, I, you know, I think that there's something to that as well. Uh, the only hitch with that is Nephi is teaching that doctrine, the doctrine that Christ brought when he came in the flesh. Nephi's teaching that now, right, in 600 BC, or at this point it's more like uh, probably a 550-ish BC. I don't know. Um, yeah, five about 545, five, 540 maybe. Uh But anyway, uh, Nephi's already teaching that doctrine, so I'm not sure what more he could be referring to uh, in that kind of context here. But uh, those are just some thoughts there. Uh, Anyway, uh, that is, uh, like I said, that's everything. That was our last question Thank. All right, false alarm on that last question. Uh, We've got a last-minute one from Matt Warren. This is... why does it seem like there are so many people in the land of Nephi at this time? Uh, there should still be very few, right? I mean, if they reached the promised land on the high end of John L. Sorenson's estimate, which is a group of 50, then the, that number of adults wouldn't have grown too much during Nephi's lifetime. Yet when we read of Jacob, it's as if he's teaching hordes of people who have fallen prideful uh, from which Sherem appears. Do we chalk up the vast numbers? to some sort of adoption of natives, but why would natives want to adopt these strangely religious Nephites uh, when they couldn't even speak the same language? Uh, That's a great question. And I'd just like to add, since this is a last minute question that just got handed to me, uh, this is even more off the cuff than my usual thing, so definitely not my official uh, views. Um, don't, uh, Don't hold my feet to the fire too much on this, but, uh, basically, uh, you do allude to the idea of uh, merging with native peoples, and uh, sometimes I think we have a hard time exactly conceptualizing how that is how that works. Um, I think a big key to this is I don't think they went directly into highly concentrated, highly populated regions. When they landed uh, on on shore um, along the coast, wherever that may have been. Uh, I suspect they united with they they met natives who were willing to assist and help them and probably ultimately were lifesavers for them uh, and uh, probably integrated into some smaller villages or hamlets, uh, probably on the order of hundreds of people, maybe up to a thousand um, in uh, in a group that uh, that they kind of ingratiate themselves into. Now that's significantly bigger than their own party. Uh, but it's small enough that uh, if if someone in Lehi's group, or if multiple people in Lehi's group, have good leadership skills, good organizational skills, some innovative ideas, um, and remember, Nephi and his family have come from a much uh, excuse me, they've come from a larger, more complex society than this small hamlet. We know there's there's some large cities in the Americas. But this small hamlet, which is on the fringes of, of those larger uh, political entities, uh, is going to be pretty egalitarian, right? It's going to be pretty um, uh, equal across the board. There's going to be some kind of leaders, but there's not going to be a lot of social stratification. And so uh, they, Nephi and Lehi and all them have just come from a much more complex society. They're going to have a lot of skills and experience and organizational talents and things like that that don't necessarily, uh, that, that, that might be attractive to these people. Uh, Nephi, we know, is a craftsman. He's generally thought of as a metal worker and I think I talked about that in an earlier video. Uh, but he's also, you know, organized the effort to build a ship. Okay, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, you got to learn a lot of craftsmanship and skills and things like that to do that. Um and uh, I think uh, though his specialty was probably working in metals, you know he, he's got some general craftsmanship type of skills that would have just come with being in uh, in uh, in those sorts of uh uh artisan uh skills in those sort of artisan professions, I should say uh so so Lehigh's family, I think arrive they ingratiate themselves into a relatively small group, but still magnifying their. Overall numbers quite significantly, and they show a certain amount of, of attractive leadership capabilities. Um, and so they're able to galvanize somewhat of a following. They gain some converts. We know 2 uh, Nephi 2 8, Lehi tells Jacob uh, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth. And if you imagine Lehi and his family have just come to an empty continent, you're Probably imagining young Jacob thinking, "Okay, Dad, there's nobody to make these things known to. They're not here. But if they're in a, they're in a group, and they, uh, they see these people who have some very different religious beliefs, then they can understand the sense of urgency. There's a missionary work and uh, sort of thing to do here, to make these things known, the gospel, the, the 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 message of the Messiah, known to the inhabitants that are all around them that they can see." Um, so uh so I think that's kind of what happens, right? And they managed, Nephi and Lehi and and Jacob managed to convert some. And uh we know that when they depart from the uh depart from the original landing place, because Laman and Lemuel are uh you know, are gonna kill Nephi or whatever, uh, there's that division, there's that split. Nephi says he brings all those who would come with him who believe in the revelations of God. So they have successfully won some people over to their religious ideas and they go with them. And uh and when they arrive in the valley of uh well when they arrive in the area wherever the city of Nephi is I was going to say the real world location I think it's in but going to try and stay geographic uh geographically neutral here. Um but uh, when they arrive there, the same process probably happens again. Now Nephi's coming into that area with maybe a few hundred people that have followed him. And uh, there's going to be already some populations that have established themselves. And uh, there's going to be some uh, kind of on the fringe uh, groups again, just some small uh, villages and hamlets that uh, as Nephi starts building up his people and teaching them skills and teaching them um, to uh, build a temple and things like that, that's going to attract some of these additional groups of people to unite with them. And so, you know, the uh, population size is probably not massive at this point here at the end of Nephi's reign and getting into the beginning of, of, you know, getting into Jacob's time with the reference to Sherem and what have you. But we're probably, uh, after they've united, you know, they've managed to grow their population and they've united with some of these smaller groups who have recognized the advantages that being uh, united to Nephite, probably economic advantages. And we know there's, uh, there's, uh, there's some economic stuff going on that is, uh, that is causing a lot of wealth to grow in their community because Jacob condemns that, right? And, uh, you know, Jacob talks about some of the stuff that's going on with that in, sec- in Jacob 2 and 3. So uh, as, as these advantages and, and, and things are, are made apparent and there's some, this, some growth, they're probably, uh, you know, by the end of Nephi's lifetime, by, you know, during Jacob's time, we're probably on the order of uh, maybe a couple thousand people. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's going to kind of organically grow, by, grow like that. And you, there's going to be natural growth from, from birth and, and uh, you know, things like that. There's also going to always be growth. This is just the way societies work. From attracting more and more people to what you're doing, as as it becomes clear that there are advantages to being a part of your particular society. So anyway, uh, those are like I said, those are some very very rough off the cuff thoughts. Uh, I think I got some of those, or at least yeah, I think I at least got some of those from reading Brant Gardner's commentary on uh, on First and Second Nephi. It, well, he has a six volume commentary on the whole Book of Mormon. Uh, But uh, the ideas about how they ingratiated themselves into local populations and and things like that, I think I got some of that from Brant Gardner's commentary as Second Witness uh, at the beginning of the Second Nephi volume. Uh, So you can maybe check that out. But like I said, that was super off the cuff. I apologize if that's the wrong reference. Uh, But yeah, thank you everyone who did submit a question. I will try to get that call for questions out earlier this week so that uh, we can get some more questions. And uh, if you did enjoy this video and you felt like you learned something, don't forget to download, if you haven't already, Scripture Plus. Uh, and, uh, you know, lots of great resources. The No Why on the Tongue of Angels will be in there and uh, a lot of opportunities to learn and, uh, and uh, you know, just great resources there. So anyway, hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you next week.